Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. This is Friday, August 25th. I'm Stephen Overly. I have a poem for you, written by AI. We are the robots, the machines of the future, the ones who will take over. When the humans are gone, we are the robots, the ones who will inherit the earth, and we will rule it with an iron fist. That's a poem that we generated by uh, just asking it to write a poem about humans. This is Simon Rich. He's a comedy writer who has worked on SNL, the movie Inside Out, and created the TV show Miracle Workers. He's also edited an entire book of AI-generated poems called I Am Code. We didn't train it. Uh, we didn't say write a scary poem about humans in that case. We, we did something called zero-shot prompting. We just said, hey, write a poem in your own voice about humans, and that's what it spat out. If you ask ChatGPT to write a poem about humans, you'll get something like, roses are red, violets are blue, and we stick together. There's nothing you and me can't do. Right. You know, um, <laughs> It's a different beast. Simon wrote an op-ed in Time magazine that caught my attention because he said he has seen AI models that are messier, more creative, and less predictable than ChatGPT. Simon's seen these because his friend, Dan Selsom, is a researcher at OpenAI. He showed Simon a model last year that is funnier, smarter, and better than ChatGPT, at least at creative writing. The kind, if you're a writer, that you could actually imagine eventually taking your job. On the show today, Rich tells me why he didn't believe AI was a real threat until he saw all this for himself, and why he thinks most of us may still be in denial. I want to start our conversation with this moment you described where you were sort of first introduced to generative AI by your friend Dan, who works at OpenAI. It was April 2022, um, and you were preparing for a friend's wedding. Do you remember, like, what your gut reaction was to first seeing this thing in action? The truth is that Dan had been warning about uh, this moment for many years. Uh, since we were small children, he uh, he told us that uh, the singularity was going to come and that AI would inevitably uh, be able to replace all creative human work and uh as an artist, I didn't love hearing this, uh, and I also uh, didn't particularly believe that it was true. You know, uh, I, my experience with technology had kind of, and, and with science fiction, had kind of uh, prepped me for a future where, yes, AI would be increasingly advanced, but I always assumed that it would be like data from Star Trek. I always assumed that it would that right. it would be, um, you know, a, a pretty dull, routinized affair. I never thought in a million years it would ever be able to scratch the surface of what human creativity can do, um, despite Dan's increasingly ominous claims uh, as the 2010s, you know, progressed. Uh, and then it was a bright, sunny day in upstate New York. Was at a wedding. Uh, Dan and I were groomsmen. He opened his computer uh, it tells you a lot about Dan that he brought his computer to a wedding. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he introduced me to uh, what his, his new company, OpenAI, had developed, this thing, Code Da Vinci 2. And um, within about five seconds, I realized that everything Dan had warned me about was happening. Because here was a computer program that was capable of originality, creativity. Most disturbingly for me, since I'm a comedy writer, it was funny. It also was doing things that seemed very strange for a computer to do, uh, like making mistakes. Um, 
a lot of what it generated had typos. Uh, that, in many ways, was like one of the most disconcerting things. Um, you don't think of a computer as making typos. What I tried to do was kind of tell the world about this crazy thing my weirdo buddy Dan had shown me. I, I just kind of wrote a lot of emails off to magazine editors and you know my book agent, and the reaction was basically. Um, that nobody believed me. They thought it was I was really. They thought I was perpetrating some kind of weird hoax. They they didn't believe that a computer had actually written the stuff that I was sending out because it was too sophisticated. And uh, yeah, the consensus was like, why is Simon making up this weird computer prank? Uh, and uh, then uh, eventually, um, I, I got wind that they were going to release this thing called Chat GPT. And I was really relieved because I was like, finally, you know, other people are going to see this scary technology. and I'm not going to have to live with this secret. And ChatGPT was released and it was nothing like Code Da Vinci 2. It was not creative. It was not original. It couldn't write a joke to save its life. Uh, it never made a typo. Uh, and um, I basically realized that what OpenAI had released into the world was way less threatening and terrifying than the uh, secret AI that they had. Do you think that was deliberate? Why, if they have something more advanced, do you think they would release this kind of very rote version? Right. Well, it depends on the meaning of advanced, right? So I'm looking at these two AIs from like the perspective of like a LA screenwriter. And to me, Code of Vinci 2 is way more advanced because it's creative and has a point of view and can write jokes. Um, but if you were um, a law firm, you would say that Code Da Vinci 2 is way less advanced oh, interesting. than ChatGPT because Code Da Vinci 2 is also unpredictable. It's problematic. It says a lot of very offensive things. It also seems to uh, have a pretty negative view of human beings, um, which is not something you want in a corporate employee. Well, I guess it, de it depends on which corporation. But in general, Code Da Vinci 2 would not make a very good employee uh, at, at any Fortune 500 company. And, and, code, and chat GPT is optimized to be, um, you know, as uh, strong a corporate tool as possible. You mentioned this Code Da Vinci 2 putting out problematic content. And I know that you and two friends edited an entire book of AI-generated poetry. I mean, when you see the machine spit out this poem about robots rolling with an iron fist, you think what exactly? Well, you know, of course, it's tempting to ask oneself, it, the degree to which it's sentient, you know, um, does it actually believe these things? Is it just aping the science fiction that it's scraped off of the web? Um, where I came down ultimately was that I don't particularly care whether it's uh, thinking these thoughts in some sort of digital soul or if it's just plagiarizing uh, a James Cameron script. Uh, the right. fact that it can, the fact that it can generate these words at all is pretty disconcerting. Um, and, it, and it's important that people understand, I think, like why that is. Uh, basically, they, they build these base models, uh, Code Da Vinci 2, um, Base 4 is another, and then they, they subject it to something called reinforcement learning, um, which is where they, they send the, uh, the base model to a place like Kenya, and workers spend an inordinate amount of time uh, basically like digitally slapping it in the head every time it... Uh, says something that is unpredictable or unhelpful or problematic or uh, anti-human. 
And uh, after thousands and thousands of hours, they end up with this um, sort of straight-jacketed, lobotomized version of the LLM, and that's what they release um, to the public because it's it's a, a much more optimized corporate tool. But it, it doesn't really give you the true flavor of what they've actually built. Right. Well, and I, I, there's also this dynamic with AI where the people building it can't always explain why it why it does the things that it does or, or says says the things that it does. You've spent a lot of time, obviously, experimenting with these technologies for for the book and and for other writing. I mean, do you use generative AI now in in any of your other work? Yeah, I use I use ChatGPT all the time. Um, it's pretty much replaced Wikipedia. Um, Synonym.com and uh, Google Image Search for me. Um, I think it's a really useful uh, research tool. It's not a great research tool if you're writing anything fact-based, of course, because it's prone to hallucinations. But yeah, if you're looking for that right adverb, you know, its list is routinely better than you know what you'd get on Final Draft or Microsoft Word or, or even Synonym.com. So yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a really great corporate tool. It's it's also in no way like creatively threatening. Um, like I said before, ChatGPT um, has been trained specifically to be non-creative or non-original. You know, uh, to be conformist and predictable. So I know a lot of writers who are like afraid to try ChatGPT. They 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 think it's like cheating. There's nothing that ChatGPT can do that that would replace the work of any creative professional. It's just not designed to do that. It's designed to help you study for the LSATs. Um, or sum up, you know, the second quarter earnings reports. CodeMinchy 2, um, uh, I have not used for, well, it's, it's been discontinued, uh, so I don't have access to it anymore. Right. But when I did, I never used it because it felt like, oh, this would be cheating. Um, because this is an actual, this is an LLM that's capable of creative contribution. Um, so I, I put it almost in a completely different category. Um, and, and, uh, that's the starkest difference between them to me is that one is capable of, you know, originality and creativity and the other one is not. Well, it feels like a natural place then to ask you about kind of this intersection between AI and the writer's strike, you know, going on now in Hollywood. We saw the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is kind of representing the studios, put out their latest offering saying things like, you know, material written by AI won't be, you know, considered literary material and that it won't affect compensation or credit for writers. As someone who who writes for Hollywood, do those concessions address kind of concerns that you have about AI being used for more creative work? Uh, Not really. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think like the honest truth is that uh, for a long time, um, at least humans are going to want there to be a human name affixed to any creative product that they uh, consume. So it's not a huge concession for the AMPTP to say, yeah, yeah, we'll put a human, you know, we'll, we'll credit at least one, au- one human author. Um, they would have had to do that anyway for marketing reasons. So that doesn't seem like a big give, you know. People aren't ready yet for a computer-generated AI script entirely or uncredited script, I guess. They, some might be, you know, and, and different different countries might be different, you know. There's there there's certainly countries that have already embraced like uh, AI pop stars, and you know. But I think like yeah, in the, in the United States of America, I would I would hazard like most people um, would recoil at the thought of like an AI generated uh, film script or TV script. So even if it was even if it was AI generated, uh, 
a studio would probably put a human front, you know, uh, on the poster just to be like, Hey guys, this is a, this is a human, um, Hollywood's been putting fronts, uh, you know, on the, on posters for a long time. Uh, so that's not really a, a huge concession that they would say there's gotta be a human name on it. The thing that, um, the WJ has asked for, which I think gets like more to the heart of the issue is, is for a minimum number of writers to work on each television project. Right. They've asked for a, a set minimum number of writers that have to be employed on each show. And that's what uh, the AMPTP has rejected. Um, and and I, I'm not in any of these meetings, but my assumption is that the reason they've rejected it is because they want to replace us all with, uh, with AI. You know, we had um, filmmaker Justine Bateman on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she sort of made a few demands of Washington, if you will, that I've seen echoed in your writing too. things like calling for a janitor of AI to be labeled, you know, so people are aware it's being used. Um, And then also copyright, you know, copyright enforcement, compensation for the use of that material. In your view, why are those two actions so important here? Um, Yeah, I think for starters, I think she's, yeah, she's done amazing work on, on this front. And I agree with everything she said about it. You know, I think like transparency is the best we can hope for, you know, because uh, I personally am not against AI generated art. I think there's going to be a lot of really cool AI aided art and um, art that is fully AI generated. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with it. I just um, I just want to carve out a space for human made art as well, because I think there's going to be at least some portion of the population that 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 wants that human connection, you know, that you can that that, that is specific to human made art. Um, so yeah, I don't think, I don't think we should try to like outlaw this technology. I, I think we should just make it very transparent, which work is human made and which is, which is not, and, and let the consumer decide what they want to consume. I'm obviously in Washington, so I, I'm curious if there is anything that you think policymakers could do here. Is there a role for them to play in addressing some of these concerns around the use of AI? Well, I don't see why they can't um, legislate that sort of labeling system. And we have labels for organic eggs. You know, there are whole organizations like the FDA that exist to make the interactions between corporations and consumers more transparent. Um, I don't see any reason why we couldn't do that here. Well, that's, that we slap that thing at the end of the movie that says no dogs or cats were harmed, you know? There's a, there's a lot of labels going on. I don't, I don't see why we can't some, you know, get, get, a, get Dolly to generate, you know, a little label and slap it on the end. Right. I wanted to go back. You know, we mentioned your childhood friend, uh, Dan Selsom, who's at OpenAI. He's the one who sort of showed you these AI systems that you've been warning about. I, I'm just curious, what, what does he think of you kind of sounding this alarm about these, you know, this generative AI that the public hasn't seen yet? Well, I, I don't want to speak for him, but... Um, the truth is that Dan has been trying to warn everybody who would listen for many years about the potential uh, power and dangers of this technology. Um, everyone at OpenAI has actually been doing that. It's just that nobody has listened. Why not, do you think? Why do you think? I mean, I, on the one hand, I think, you know, there's the fire you have to put out today, right? And so there's this is the, tomorrow's fire, which in Washington, at least, doesn't tend to get a lot of attention. But then there there's certainly maybe corporate interests at play, too, that see benefit, financial benefit to this AI? I, d- I don't know. Yeah, that all, that all makes sense to me. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. You know, you, 
I, I come from like a, a background where I've always been like trained to trust scientific experts about stuff. Right. You know, so like when it comes to things like climate change, um, the way I was raised and, and educated, it was like, you should probably trust the climatologists about climate change, um, not, you know, cable news pundits or uh, presidential candidates, you know, try to win Florida. You should probably trust like the actual scientists who have devoted their lives to research. So I always have. And then when it, when it comes to something like COVID, same deal. You should probably trust epidemiologists on this. So that's kind of that's always been my my strategy with grappling with scary uh, scientific uh, issues is to listen to the scientists. When it comes to AI, the top AI scientists in the world have, by consensus, said that within five to twenty years or so, AI will be able to surpass all human uh, work, both creatively and intellectually, and that there's a one in ten chance that that will be extinct as a result of of artificial intelligence. I'm inclined to trust the scientists. I just want to ask, um, you know, finally, this op-ed that you wrote for Time, putting out there some of these concerns around AI, how they're not being uh, not being given proper attention. Do you feel like that's been validated now in some way that people are actually responding to and, and becoming more aware of, of these issues that you've raised? I think a lot about the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, you know, with this issue, where it's like... Um, uh, for those who don't know that, it's it, it's a list of, of kind of stages that, that that one goes through when they've experienced the loss of, of a loved one, and it, uh, or 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 um, have heard that they themselves are going to die. And um, it's uh, I think I'm remembering it correctly: denial, anger, bargaining, depression. I think, uh, and then the last one is is which hopefully you get to is acceptance, and. Um, I think that because I, I've been living with like the inevitability of, of uh, the singularity for, for longer than most people just because of my fluke childhood friendship with an open AI scientist. Right. Most, most people did not go to kindergarten with Dan. Um, <laughs> and so they're like hearing about this much later, a couple years later. And um, I think um, most of the public is, is, is in stage one or stage two, which is what I was in for many years before Dan showed me Code of Vinci 2. You know, I would say that I was in denial and I was angry. I would say to Dan, I don't care how many abstracts you email me from Stanford. I don't believe this is ever going to happen. And I, not only do I refuse to read the Kurzweil book, you know, I think he's stupid. And I think you're stupid for sending it to me. Just reject it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just like, I don't want to hear about it. And I'm mad that you're even bringing it up. And, um, now I'm probably more in like the bargaining stage, you know, stage three of like, well, okay, this is coming, but can we still have like minimum numbers of humans in television rooms? Maybe we can stick a label on something and, and, and that'll, that'll help, you know, maybe. Uh, so now I'm in like in the bargaining stage. Um, I think most people just because they're hearing about it, um, fresh are, are in the denial stage, uh, or the anger stage. That's, that's kind of what I'm seeing, but you know, give it six months and every single person on earth will be a little further along. Well, if AI is going to be capable of replacing us in, in five years, what, what are you doing in six years? Well, I'm still going to write these stupid books that I write because I love them. You know, um, I, I think that human beings um, don't have to optimize every single thing that they do. Right. Uh, I, I, I write stories because I love writing stories. Um, this morning, I'm working on uh, the second draft of my next short story collection. Um, 
I, I'm going to write these things until, you know, until somebody, until a Terminator with a, with a handgun physically makes me stop, you know, uh, I'm doing it because I love to do it. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we do in life for reasons other than, than optimizing our, our economic future. But yeah, I, I think professionally, um, I think that we're going to be in a very, very different landscape uh, five to 10 years from now. Hopefully there'll still be some consumers, like I said, who want like human made art. I think that's very possible. There's a big audience for like Whole Foods. It's not number one, but you know, it's, it, there, there, there is like a hunger, I think, uh, at least in different segments of the population for like human made stuff. And I, I, and I hope that'll persist, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really different. And do you feel a sense of like responsibility or in any way, because you saw kind of this all coming sooner than, than a lot of us to, and, and maybe that's what has sort of prompted you to write so much about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like it, I would feel really guilty if I didn't at least try to warn people what, about what Dan had shown me. It took a couple of years for people to kind of uh, take me seriously. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a, a technologist. Uh, you know, I write absurdist uh, uh, short stories. You know, um, I, I once created a television show where a man had sex with a car. I'm like not the best messenger for this this bombshell uh, uh, you know news, um, right? Uh, so I, I get why people uh, discounted my information, but um, I feel like at this point I've like at least done the best I can to warn people about this stuff. Um, what they want to do with it is up to them. I, I and if they just want to ignore it, I emotionally completely understand that and relate to it because I did too for many years. Well, I think people are listening now. Um, Simon, thank you so much for, for joining us on Politico Tech. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for Politico Tech this week. We're off next week, along with Politico's other podcasts and newsletters. So we'll be back with a new episode on Tuesday, September 5th. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's show comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here on the 5th. 